Hello and welcome to a special episode of Middle of the Road, the podcast. I'm Jonathan Rahul and today I am talking with Aisha Sultan. Aisha is a syndicated columnist based at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch where they've been writing for more than 20 years. Her work focusing on education and parenting has also appeared in national publications such as The Guardian, CNN, and The Washington Post. Education Interrupted is her second documentary and follows the experience of a mother of three young children navigating virtual school during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. It premieres at the St. Louis International Film Festival on Saturday, November 3rd. Um, I did want to start with something a little bit more lighthearted because it is the week of Halloween. So we had Halloween on Monday. And as a writer, I want to know if you've heard any quality jokes then on Halloween evening. So this is the first year in I don't know how many years that we did not participate in Halloween because I had to fly out of town Mm -hmm. for um, a family emergency in Texas. Mm -hmm. But one thing that our family had been known for because of me was giving out full-size candy bars on Halloween (laughs) and it made us a popular house in the street. (laughs) And so even as I'm like flying out to deal with this family situation in Texas, I was telling my husband, don't forget to get the candy. Don't forget to get the candy. And then when I got home late last night, I saw that he got the mini size candy. And I was like, oh, God, you've ruined my reputation in this town. <laughs> I feel like it's probably one of the many things. I can't imagine how I, the tradition of Halloween has changed during COVID. Was that weird for your family as well to be like, how are we going to do, like, how do we feel about this? going around to like people or even giving out candy you know what during covid we did make a little table with a basket you know of candy and a sign because we only got like 20 30 trick-or-treaters it wasn't like we had hundreds of people coming to our neighborhood and you know we just said please help yourself and you know we felt like that was a safer way to do it but um i was really excited for like the return of halloween yeah Did you, uh, where did you find you and your family feeling? I feel like in the past year or so, everyone has struggled with this tension on the continuum of either you're being still like super COVID cautious and strict and you go out in public and you're like, oh, I'm the only one doing this. Or you're either like, all right, we're done. COVID's over. And you're kind of just like, you're, prioritizing more of the regular normalcy of life because that's a lot of the psychological aspect. But then you go out and you're like, oh, I'm the only one maybe not wearing a mask or that kind of thing. How did your family grapple with that kind of tension? you know, my family had... My family had a difficult COVID experience because my husband's a healthcare worker. And so before... And he was going to the hospital every day during COVID. Um, And so before the vaccines were available... He got COVID and he got very sick, very, very sick um, and had to be hospitalized and um, was seriously critically ill and then had to, was on oxygen for six months once he got home. So we really had um, quite a, and then one of my uh, very dear family members was hospitalized and in rehab for much longer. He's much older and never really recovered from the terrible COVID infection he got. And I had, I had, I got COVID from my husband the first time before the vaccine, which was not a great experience. And then I got it after I was vaccinated. And then I got it one more time, even after I was boosted. So, and, and we were a pretty cautious, careful family. So, um, I would say 
I, so this is all to say that COVID was a pretty traumatic time, a couple of years for us. Um, fortunately, you know, I didn't lose my husband. That was a huge blessing. Um, but we definitely were very careful about masking. My husband is still careful about masking. I think I'm part of that group of people that just wants so bad to get back to normal. Yeah. And I'm such a people person. I love being around people. I love being face-to-face in classrooms and teaching and talking and interviewing people that I am just, I love traveling. I love, I love being able to do it all again and I'm appreciating it so much more. I do think it's important to stay on top of the vaccines and vaccinations and boosters and flu shots. Um, but I don't know. I just, I feel like I want to get past that trauma. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then even prior to all that, then when we were kind of in the thick of it, I guess the end of, or the beginning of 2020, a lot of districts went virtual kind of when COVID was rising. And then the start of that school year is when a lot of them stayed virtual and had to rethink their schedule and their format. Talk us through how you got the inspiration of this is going to be an entirely new structure and paradigm for education. Um, Someone needs to document it and someone needs to be present in order to tell that story. Like talk us about the. Such a good question. So I have, I, at the time I had two high school kids myself and it was hard for us. One of my kids in particular really struggled with that loss of structure and social interaction really struggled, right? It's top student, really having a hard time with it. And I didn't know how to make it any easier or better. And um, at, I work at full-time at the Post-Dispatch as a, as a writer, and we had to take two-week furloughs during COVID. And during that time, a former editor reached out to me, and he'd gotten a grant to be able to write stories about a zip code that is one of the most underserved with the worst health outcomes in our region. And he wanted to do stories about how COVID was affecting people in this zip code. And he asked me if I would be part of that project. And I said, absolutely. And I had this two-week furlough, so I had time to do some of the reporting and writing about it. And when I started talking through a social a social service agency there, connecting me to certain families, I knew I was interested in education because of, well, I was an education reporter for a long time, but also because of what my own family was going through. It was like such a immediate visceral thing I was experiencing that I, I wanted to see how other people were dealing with it. So they connect, I inter, I pre-interviewed several families and then I settled on one who I really connected with, who understood the scope of what I wanted to do because it's a very immersive, very intimate form of storytelling. And not everybody wants to expose their life that completely, that fully to a stranger, hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I would have big doubts about it, right? So, but Tyra and I connected over the phone. We had so many phone conversations. And then when I was getting ready to go out, because at first this was just going to be print stories, a series of print stories. I said to my editor, um, Dick Weiss at the time, I said, you know, I think this is going to be really important to document in video format because it's historic and because no one is paying we don't have the resources. Most news, local news organizations don't have the resources to embed or stay with a family in the zip code over an extended period of time. And I want to raise the money and find a way to do this in addition to my job. He was like, go for it. I got a little bit of seed money from the Pulitzer Center and I used it. 
that first day of homeschooling with her, I made sure I had somebody with a camera with me there. And we cut that down into a short form so that I could apply for other grants. And then it was sort of like, as I applied for grants and got more money, I could come back to the same family and keep following them over two years. Then I applied for more grants to be able to do the post-production and editing and put the whole thing together. Now I'm finally at a place where I could share it with the world. But I will tell you, honestly, every time, I mean, there are several times when I went out there and I came back and I felt really heavy because I could see how the impact of what happened was going to change the trajectory of so many kids' lives. And while we're so eager, I'm so eager to get over it, get past it, get beyond it, there are some kids who were supposed to learn how to read during those two years. Um, if they don't learn to read by a certain age, they may not graduate high school. Like, their entire lives will be changed. And I felt like this is such an important story. And if I if I'm not out there in North City or East St. Louis documenting this story, who is going to do it? It's That's so powerful to, heal, to hear, excuse me, because it feels like there was so much pushback about uh, the idea of social distancing and quarantining just for the sake of it as an inconvenience. And then this story comes out and it deeply highlights not the inconvenience aspect, but like you said, the educational consequences of it and how that impacts some demographics more more unequally than others. Hey, you know, if this was so hard for me in a middle-class school, suburban school district with two working parents, with older kids, how was someone who lives in a neighborhood where bullets are routine, routinely shot into her apartment, uh, who's a single wage earner, for three little kids um, who no longer has a job, how is she supposed to um, manage what was happening in the world and be able to keep her kids learning on track? That was my big question. Yeah. What a, there's so much of, even though you describe the differences in experiences between your family, your family and Tyra's family, there's so much still of that empathetic connection as a parent mm -hmm. with your perspective as a mother, um, as an earner of your family, as, um, as a woman of color. Yes. As a woman of color that you convey. I'm also wondering because you're, this is a fairly new medium for you. You've had right. one documentary out before. This is your second documentary. Right. What was it like maybe trying to capture your tone, your perspective, your attitude, which is so apparent in your writing but at the same time, you can kind of observe and comment from a distance mm -hmm. when, like you said, you're in a very intimate setting when you're following this family as they're going through this really harrowing experience. Yeah. How is that different? Um, so it's a question I ask myself a lot because as a filmmaker and of course, as a journalist, but especially as a filmmaker, because it is so intimate and so uh, raw, you know, and it involves little kids, I ask myself about my responsibility um, in that role, about the power differential, mm. about uh, who really gets to tell this story and from what perspective. Those were conversations I had with myself and with Tyra and with the people who are working on this film deliberately and intentionally throughout the process. Mm -hmm. 
And I am drawn, I've, this is my third film that I've made. My first one was a narrative, and the last two, like you mentioned, have been documentaries. The last one I made was about a woman who's been incarcerated for 35 years, uh, named Patty Pruitt in Vandalia, Missouri, in Missouri, for a crime that she says a man who raped her committed, a murder that she says her rapist committed, and she's been in prison for it. And this story is about, um, you know, a single mom who now lives in East St. Louis, um, uh, in in, a, in schools that most of us would prefer just not to think about, you know, many of us, sadly, um, because it highlights our own disparities and unearned advantages of yeah. by accident of birth. But what draws me to the films that I want to make, because you end up spending a year to two years with the people that, that you're making a film about, is um, a mother, because uh, I'm I strongly identify in my role as a mother, and um, who is from a community that is marginalized and whose story would otherwise probably not be told in a respectful way that empowers and uplifts them. Like, I did not know any women in prison for murder until I got to know Patty and her family. I did, I have reported quite a bit on uh, communities in the city in East St. Louis and in schools there, but I formed a different kind of relationship of mutual trust, of mutual respect with Tyra. Um, you know, there's a strong responsibility there, and it's just something I'm very cognizant of. I did not grow up in a privileged household. I grew up as one of very few uh, brown people in a majority white community that was much more affluent than we were financially. So I understand what it feels like to be on the margins. I spent my entire childhood on the margins. And in this country, I often feel like I'm on the margins. But I, re I recognize that I have a platform and I have a different type of power. And I am committed to using that in a way that gives people like the child, the like the child version of me a voice. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. I'm wondering, is that then something you would encourage? I feel like also in the years of COVID and the Trump administration, there's been so much criticism about the quote-unquote eliteness of uh, the journalism realm of the fourth estate. Um, would you say then that you recommend that journalists actually get into more of a environment like documentary filmmaking that way they kind of build a little bit more of that investment so to speak like how how would you say this has changed your storytelling then um going forward like what sort of lessons and things have well i think good journalists always spend time in um in communities different from their own you know communities that are in the margins and spend considerable time there um getting to know people and building connections and trust in those communities. That's just part of the job of having a well-rounded worldview and w view of problems that are facing our society. Um, and I think that a lot of the charges that you hear about elitism um, probably have to do with like journalists in the Beltway, journalists that are moving and covering people in power versus those who are the powerless. Mm -hmm. And if you are telling stories from the perspective of the powerless, then those are the people that you have to be around and get to know and build trust with. Mm -hmm. And that is where it's hardest to get resources for, um, especially in, in um, local news markets that have been contracting and contracting for so many years because the loss of paid subscribers, the loss of advertising, that it's really hard to 
invest the kinds of resources. I mean, I had to raise all my own money for this film through applying for various grants and spend all my own time without paying myself anything because this was a project I felt strongly about. But this was not a project I could ask my newspaper to fund. They don't have the resources. And, you know, I was writing weekly columns and weekly feature stories and doing whatever else my day job required. But I felt... I don't know. I felt compelled. I felt like this is part of history. And this is, you know, when history is written, there are certain perspectives that get top billing and primary place to tell their stories. And there are other people who don't. I'm curious, how did you also just more broadly, how did you decide to make the choice to transition from just the written medium to the visual medium to what like what was that it's, process it's like? so random i feel <laughs> i feel so i feel so silly even telling this story because it's like so it was such a random thing but um i you know i feel things very deeply i am a very sensitive and passionate person which i think um should translate into your writing if you want people to care about your writing, right? Um, so after the after Trump was elected, I had so many feelings of alienation and awkwardness and discomfort and fear and anxiety that were very complicated. And I felt like I couldn't even truly capture them I mean I tried I wrote lots of columns about a lot I wrote lots of columns around that election and about my reaction to it and what I thought about it but I really wanted people to feel something I wanted people to feel that sense of othering and I was talking about a scenario to a friend of mine who had made a film and she said to me like, I think you have a film in you. And I was like, I, I don't know the first thing about making a film. And I swear to God, I did not know the first thing about it. But I wrote a little script about a s- couple of scenes that I could just visualize and see. So I wrote this little script. I knew people who are in television and film. So I asked them to give me some notes on it, tell me their thoughts on it. I tweaked it. I, wor- I reworked it. And then I just thought, you know what, why not? I'll just, I'm just going to try to make a film. So I Googled how to make an independent film. I like literally Googled it and I read everything I could on Google. I watched a ton of independent short films on like Vimeo, on YouTube, just to understand the structure and flow and what interests me and the visuals and the aesthetics. And I learned like what the bare bones is that you need. How do you make a budget? Who do you hire? Like what is a gaffer? What does a director do? I knew nothing about the language or the lingo or any of it. Um, But you can learn a lot from Google. <laughs> I mean, you really can. Please don't tell my students that. Um, that will make my job obsolete. <laughs> no, but, you know, it, it took a long time. And, I, yeah. and there were times when I definitely wish I had a teacher who I could, like, mm-hmm. learn in a more structured way where I was not, you know, it was yeah. it was difficult. But I was able to, t- to take this, ni- this little script that I wrote and then raise enough money to make a nine-minute short film. And it was something that just came out of my imagination, and I got to see it translated into a real-life thing. And it blew me away that that could even happen. Like, you could have an idea and a scene in your head, and then people are saying those lines, and that scene is unfolding before your eyes. I think I knew then that this is probably not going to be my last film because this is exhilarating. And then to be able to show that in a theater to people and hear their feedback and have them respond to it and listen. I mean, some people responded negatively. Some people responded very positively. 
uh, it just was like this overwhelming feeling of being creative and connection with others and making art that felt different than making an argument in newsprint or telling a story. It felt different. Mm-hmm. And so then um, after I did that, documentary is more in my wheelhouse as a journalist because you're not c- completely coming up with characters and hiring actors and writing a script. And I was working on a series of editorials um, about people who I deserve, who I believe the government, the governor should give clemency to. And this one case really stood out to me because for so many reasons, and I had access to these families and they were willing to do this with me. So I thought, I'll just make a documentary. (laughs) And honestly, it was like just learning as I did it and learning from people who were smarter than me. And so once I made that documentary, I thought I could probably make another one. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was really just sort of like a seat of the pants. Here's the thing. If you're going to spend a year to two years to three years with a story, it has to really compel you. Mm-hmm. It has to really grab you and you have to be able to sit with it and you have to be able to sort through the layers of it and you have to understand why it means something to you. And, um, and that in itself, taking my sa- myself from a place of comfort and ease and feeling like uh, competent in this form of storytelling, which is through writing, to a place of discomfort and learning and fear and not knowing what the hell I was doing, was really important to me growing as a human being, Mm -hmm. growing as a storyteller. You talked so prominently about the othering aspect and wanting to convey that other people Mm -hmm. your first narrative film is from the perspective of a South Asian Muslim father and now your documentary, Education Interrupted, is from the perspective of a single black woman of color, black mother. Um, when you, and you talked a little, bit, a little bit about this in terms of who tells the story. Mm-hmm. Have you, and you talk about this within the, cons, the context of representation during the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. How do we really elevate voices of color from South Asian to black. As a South Asian individual, where do you find yourself in that continuum of how do you also not just represent your own background, your own ethnicity, ethnic um, background, but also the ones who are also even more marginalized mm-hmm. by our society and oppressed? And what is what does that intersectionality look like for you and your storytelling vision? I think one thing that is really important to me that will probably be a part of any future stories that I tell or that films that I make will be this concept of family and who gets to define who is a family, what makes a family in this country, and uh, how we treat families in America. Yeah. That's, a, that's a central question that's really important to me. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at all the data about families in this country, you will see that black and brown families have different health outcomes, different educational opportunities, talking on a, you know, what do you say, um, like large level, not, like, of course, there's everybody's individual situation is different, but I'm talking in terms of, like, group levels, you know, you will see disparities there, and so I think, and also, just as a woman, being a woman in this country right now really means something different than being a man in this country. It always has, but especially right now in my life, I feel very 
angry about it and things that create a lot of emotion in me, like after the Trump presidency, feeling so othered, feeling so alienated, after Roe v. Wade being overturned, feeling so threatened, mm. feeling this loss of liberty. Mm. Um, as a person who grew up as a child of immigrants who were uh, very working class, you know, who from a family that qualified for free and reduced lunch in a district that was very affluent, uh, knowing what that feels like, like that's what matters most to me because there will always be people who will tell stories about the privileged, about the rich, about the powerful. And if you are not going to tell stories from your own experience or the experience of those who don't have a platform, then I guess you're probably going to make a lot more money than I ever will. <laughs> but will it be as meaningful as the question? I don't know. I, I, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But well, I know what what is meaningful to me, you know. Well, and I think very clearly through this documentary, you can see in the 45 minutes, the impact that it'll have. I I was <laughs> sitting there during my plan hour today, going through it, making some notes for our interview, and I felt so embarrassed. I was sitting at my desk, the door was open, had my headphones in watching, and I'm like welling up and crying because this, is, this isn't something that happened in the past. This is recent, like, and the issues that stemmed from virtual learning during the COVID pandemic, Tyra and countless families like her right. are going to are going to have to deal with those consequences and those long term effects. Right. There's a there's a part specifically in the film where you actually show Tyra taking her two oldest children to Miriam School to get tested to see okay where do their education deficiencies lie and she kind of comes in with some optimism because she feels like she really did her job during virtual learning yes. really working with her kids um and she gets the results back for both of them the daughter seems to be pretty typical no deficiencies and her son is marked as like struggling in certain areas uh specifically around reading and potentially with a, a diagnosis of dyslexia and you see just sort of the shock and the sadness and the sort of how, like, I did everything I could, like, how is this the thing? And even when he's with other teachers or with me, he's a lot different. Like, how can this be the outcome? Why was that so important for you to include in that part of the film at that time? I think there were a lot of people who were focused on their kids and their own survival during COVID and just getting through it, that we did not get a chance to really humanize and empathize with people whose situations had far more challenges than our own. Mm -hmm. And I found I was lucky enough to meet someone who was trying her level best to keep her kids on track, Mm -hmm. just like any any parent, good parent who cares about their kids would do. And it still wasn't enough. And I think that is a difficult, uncomfortable thing for most of us to look at and accept 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we know life is unfair, and we know there's disparities depending on where you're born, the type of education and schooling, the opportunities you'll get, just to, by luck of who your parents are, right? There's all kinds of inequalities and inequities. But the thing that really tugged at my heart with this is that, you know what, a parent can do everything right that they believe, and they can try their best, and it it really pushed back against this narrative of pull yourself up by the bootstraps that we hear so often when it comes to communities of color, that we hear when it comes to communities that don't are underserved. Well, they, if they just worked harder, if they just tried harder, well, here's someone who's trying really hard, right? What else would you have her do, yeah. you know? And, um, and so I just wanted people to see that someone who you can care about and who tries really hard can still need additional supports. And that's where we, those of us who live in a society who have responsibilities towards the collective good, have a role to play, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like, I mean, it, I, it means a lot to me as a filmmaker that you were emotionally moved in parts of this film and that it moved you to tears. Um, and I hope there were parts of it that also gave you some hope and parts of you that, parts that really uplifted you because I want it to be, I want there to be a hopeful note. I want there to be a sense of like, well, we watched something difficult. We went through something difficult, but now there's something more that can be done. Yeah. What, what would you have those audience members take away from that? Like even maybe specifically, you've been writing about education for 20 years. So we have now the knowledge of what the situation is like, not just for one single family, but again, for countless families. So what do you, what would you hope audience members take away from this besides the perspective change? What would you have them do? Yeah. So the call to action, this is what I'm dying to hear back from teachers, from educators, from other parents is I want to hear your ideas of what you think our lawmakers, our policymakers, our educational leaders could be doing better. Because I have my ideas and thoughts. I would say that we should have more reading specialists. We should have more grants focused specifically and programs for reading in the areas in schools for kids that are the furthest behind, that we have to really think about um, this extra money that school districts and cities and communities got, focusing a significant amount, not like a little drop in the bucket, but a significant amount of it to for intensive reading purposes and then also to stop with this language about how far kids are behind because yes we expect them to be behind if you lost two years of education in your prime literacy learning years you would be behind also it is just through no fault of children who didn't have access to what they needed and so what i really want a, a viewer like if i was a viewer of this film to be able to ask my principal my school district Um, or my city and community leaders, how much money are we giving out of this big pot of money and budget that is public money devoted towards helping young kids make up some of the ground that was lost? That, to me, is an important question Mm -hmm. that should be asked of school leaders, of city leaders, of county leaders, of state leaders, of anybody who's running for office and who wants to represent me. How do you hope that this film will fit as a piece in that rolling machine towards progress. So you talked a little bit about 
um, before we start recording about the idea of setting up private screenings aside from the premiere at the St. Louis yes. International Film Festival. Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so one thing that I hope to do is, you know, we're going to have our big premiere here in St. Louis, and Tyra and her kids and some of her family members and fr- other people who are in the film will also be there to see it with an audience, which is an emotional and moving experience. So I'm looking forward to that. But I also want other nonprofits, other educational agencies, other schools and PTOs, anybody who cares about education and um, kids, how kids were affected during the pandemic, to offer to host private screenings, to set up screenings and discussions within your communities, using this film as a tool using it to spark conversation and generate ideas. And I have like a whole little curriculum that I have designed around it that looks at what other school districts and other parts of the country have done because people are trying. It's not to say that people aren't trying. Um, And we don't know yet what is going to be most effective in different areas, right? But I don't want people to forget about these conversations and I want people who might not otherwise be involved in these conversations to come to the table. Education Interrupted premieres at the St. Louis International Film Festival this Saturday at 7.30 at Webster University. Aisha, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Absolutely.